In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Card coming up number 10. Uh, Daniel Street, I should say. Not quite sure who this uh, might be. Uh, if somebody's sacked, then, of course, they don't uh, come up Downing Street. That's done in private. That's the security detail just opening the door for... David, David Cameron! Cameron. What? <laughs> I was not expecting okay. that! <laughs> okay. Wow, what just happened there? Uh, This is our first political currency hot take on a very, very dramatic day in British politics. George, what is going on? And when did you find out? The return of the king. (laughs) Do you know, I had an inkling that David might be asked to rejoin the government, but I had no idea that Rishi Sunak would go ahead with the reshuffle. I mean, we spoke, didn't we, last week about whether uh, Rishi Sunak would sack Suella Braverman. That's the big decision. I think in all of these reshuffles, people often talk a lot about the appointments. It's, it's the firings, it's the dismissals that cause no end of problems for prime ministers. And, you know, I think both of us took the view that he needed to fire the Home Secretary. He has, but I think this appointment, appointing David Cameron, you know, speaks to political imagination, speaks to a prime minister who is prepared to throw the dice to win. And also has the political courage to bring back a former prime minister. There are lots of occupants in number 10 who wouldn't want to do that. And I think David returns because fundamentally he is a patriot. And I think he feels in this job at a particularly difficult time for the world, he can make a difference. And for Rishi Sunak, I think it's a big signal that he's moving to recapture the centre ground. Look, there's no doubt with the reshuffle, he's taken... Swella Braverman off the headlines on the sacking and moved it on to the appointment of David Cameron. It was just though a few weeks ago at the Conservative Party conference when um, Rishi Sunak's speech was kind of dumping on the last 15, 20 years of British politics. And you said how furious David Cameron was with Rishi Sunak for doing that. You were upset as well. I mean, what has gone on in the last um, couple of weeks? You said that this is something you had an inkling of. When did you get an inkling? When was this um, put on the table? Well, so the the first thing, you know, you and I in in the podcast, I think we analysed this 
decision at the party conference by the prime minister to say that he was the change candidate, that he was junking 30 years of failed political consensus. I think it's the conference speech that's been junked instead. I mean, it never really worked. And in the weeks since the party conference, there's been no evidence either at the King's speech we've just had, or I suspect at the autumn statement to come, that he was a radical change from everything that's come before. Instead, I think he's done the sensible thing and played to his strengths, which is he is the steady, sober prime minister who works hard for the country. And he's assembling a team of all the talents, including the former prime minister. And it's quite a coup to get a former prime minister, not least David Cameron, one of the better of the former prime ministers, to come out of essentially political retirement back to the front bench. So it's quite a handbrake turn from the party conference <laughs> speech, but one that I was I was saying at the time he should be doing. You were. And one I um, strongly support. A kind of, the, you know, steady, solid Rishi Sunak dumps his conference speech after a fortnight. That's kind of surprising. Just on the David Cameron thing, I mean, this is like the first time for maybe four decades we've had somebody who's doing one of the big jobs in um, British politics, uh, the top four jobs, not from the Commons and the Lords. There's this intriguing thing in David Cameron's statement where he talks today about getting the team back together for the general election. Is this definitely David Cameron in the House of Lords? Could there be a return of David Cameron to the House of Commons and have they asked you? I mean, could our podcast be coming to an end in the next seven, 12 hours? I've got very bad news for you, Ed. We are stuck together in this podcast marriage for the foreseeable future. You heard it here um, first. So you're not going back into government, only David well, Cameron. I certainly haven't had the call and I'm not waiting mm-hmm. by my phone, which, no. which most story MPs are doing right now. No, Cameron, I think, Cameron in the Lords? Well, as I understand it, I can't see how otherwise he could be the foreign secretary. He's certainly not planning to return to the House of Commons. Definitely not. Um, definitely not, was, as far as I understand. And, you know, there is a precedent that was, we'll probably come on and talk to about it a bit. Peter Mandelson was in the Lords as Deputy Prime Minister when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister. And you've had Lord Carrington in the early 80s with Margaret Thatcher. The great precedent for all of this is Alec Douglas Hume, the Tory Prime Minister who was brought back as Foreign Secretary by Edward Heath many years later. And of course, the Foreign Secretary job is the one job in the cabinet where you're a little bit separated from the domestic politics. You're a little bit above the fray. Doesn't mean, by the way, that David won't find himself talking about domestic politics. You know, he is now the second most senior member of the Tory government, and he will be expected, uh, and he knows this, by Conservative MPs to do everything he can to help the Conservatives get re-elected in a year. So I don't think he's expecting to just sort of, you know, drift around above everything as the elder statesman. He knows he's rolling up his sleeves to get back involved. But in the foreign policy brief where I think you can be more cross-party, I think he will be a less partisan politician than he was when he was, you know, chuntering at the things you used to say at him at the dispatch box. Yeah, you, always got um, to... you know, he is a changed individual. But He changed... won't be in the Commons getting wound up by somebody like me uh, anymore. He won't be in the Commons getting wound <laughs> up. But he, you know, I think he, he brings a lot of experience and reflection. I think people talk about experience out of office. You, you and I have both been out of office. It's not just that you get to do other things. It's also that you have a lot of time to think about what you got right, but also what you got wrong, which we've reflected on in this podcast. And I know David will think... There are things I will do differently now than I did back then. 
It was Michael Heseltine who was calling for you to come back this morning. And of course, he was brought in as Deputy Prime Minister by John Major when he was under huge pressure in 1995. The more immediate historical parallel, as you said, with Peter Mandelson in uh, 2008, Gordon Brown had had a kind of torrid year. David Miliband was um, looking like he might strike. And uh, Gordon Brown spent some months over that summer thinking about how he could turn things around. And uh, there were lots of things he considered. He actually considered bringing Alistair Campbell back into the government, this time as a um, a minister in the House of Lords to be sports minister. People thinking, you know, maybe he could bring back one of the people who'd be giving him a hard time, like Charles Clark or Steve Byers. But then he brought Peter Mandelson back from the European Commission to come in to um, be the Trade and Industry Secretary, also actually to be to be involved in Downing Street. Peter and I were then having meetings regularly with Gordon Brown over the next uh, couple of years. But in that moment, what Peter coming back did was it turned things for Gordon Brown internally. People could then say, look, he's brought back the closest person to Tony Blair. It meant all that stuff about bringing other people back was suddenly kind of forgotten because Stephen Bars or, or Alan Milburn, who, who cared, it actually enabled him to then bring Tom Watson back as a minister and also Nick Brown as the chief whip, two people who'd been on the outside in the first year because of the scars of the transition to Tony Blair. I wonder, for Rishi Sunak, is he trying to do an equivalent thing here? What is the things he is now enabled to do by this politically? What are the things he no longer has to do? I mean, maybe sucking Suella Braverman is one of them, but are there other things? So first things first, the really hard decision here is firing Suella Braverman because, you know, that is creating an implacable opponent on the Tory backbenchers who clearly has allies and, you know, she will move against... Rishi Sunak. Now, Although her mean, position had collapsed over the weekend. I mean, you know, Grant Shapps was just unable to defend her. I mean, if Rishi Sunak hadn't acted, it was going to get worse and worse, wasn't it? I completely agree. His authority would have been shot if he had not made this move. And I think it shows real political courage and, uh, and a determination to win, which we like to see in our Tory leader. And her position, frankly, become untenable before the march, and it become untenable even more so, if that's possible, after the march when, you know, the, 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 the far-right groups caused violence on the march, and then she tweeted out things which, you know, did not reflect, frankly, the balance of what had happened on the day. So she had to go, but that's a tough call by him, you know. But I think it moves beyond this stage where I think he's been overly trying to manage the party. Now, he did inherit a very divided party. You know, he was himself the beneficiary of both Liz Truss and Boris Johnson falling. And I, I think he's been overly cautious in managing the party and trying to avoid the next leadership contest without, you know, fully recognising that the next contest is not a leadership one. It's a general election. It's a leadership contest for the country. And I think with this move, getting rid of Suella Bradman, but also now saying, I want to actually reach back to the Cameroon era, create that link, which I was talking about on the podcast before, that one of the things the conference speech did was it it severed the unspoken link with the Cameroon era, who had been very pleased to see Rishi Sunak turn up in Downing Street, and he was just kind of our kind of politician. And he's reestablished that link in spades by appointing the chief Cameroon, David Cameron. A Remainer in the Foreign Office, which is quite a change um, since Brexit. Well, except that Liz Truss and Jeremy Hunt were both Foreign Secretaries. Yeah, kind of Liz Truss was not really a Remainer by that point. Well, 
you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I don't think David's position is is wildly different on Brexit from Keir Starmer's, which is neither of us wanted this to happen, but we're both living with it, and we know we can't go back as a country, which is also something I accept. I accept we can't rejoin the European Union, sadly. And I think so. David's, you know, he, I think he he put out a statement on uh, social media, anticipating some of the questions he's going to get, which is, hold on, you said, uh, you know, the country gone at Brexit. He's addressed that. He says explicitly there are things Rishi Sunak has done. I think he's alluding here to HS2, which I don't support and didn't support. But, you know, I've put those to one side because I want to come and help my party and I want to help my country. And, you know, there, there is a thing, I wouldn't often say this, and he probably would, you know, not thank me for saying it, but there is a similarity between David Cameron and Gordon Brown, which is that they are both very, very public spirited. They've, they've, they could be very aggressive partisan operators. They were both top of their political game as party leader and prime minister. But there is a kind of strong element of public service in David. I mean, that has always been part of his DNA. And I always thought when he left the House of Commons, which was not his original plan, he wanted to stay as an MP. You know, I think he wanted to sort of serve out his time on this planet as the MP for Whitney. And then he decided he shouldn't do that and he couldn't do that. But there was a bit of him as a result that died inside, which was the public service element, which he tried to fill with other things like his very important work for Alzheimer's, but it wasn't the same. And now I think you could just, when I was speaking to him about it, you could just, you know, it's like the the sound of the trumpet and, uh, you know, back on the playing field, the political playing field, and serving your country. And I, I know people listening to this will be very cynical and say, yeah, yeah, whatever. But David did really did not need to do this. Um, and so, you know, um, he's doing it because above all, he thinks he can make a difference uh, to Britain's foreign policy. There is a second difference, though, with Peter Mandelson, which is that Peter, in the years before, had been a European commissioner. He had been under intense scrutiny, as you are as a prime minister or as a cabinet minister or as a European commissioner. If there was stuff to find out about Peter Mandelson, it would have been found out. But actually, for David Cameron, he obviously got into trouble with his um, association with Greensill, which drew David Cameron into the scandal about mismanagement at the company. But more generally, he's been outside of politics. He's been doing business things. He's been traveling the world, meeting probably lots of different foreign business and uh, and political leaders. And suddenly, very quickly, he's right back into the fray. And there can't have been much time for Downing Street to have done the kind of due diligence you would normally do on somebody returning after a complicated, high-profile, non-political career. I just wonder whether that is um, is a risk, a roll of the dice that the Downing Street are, are taking. You know, The meetings David Cameron's had, the money he's earned, the things he's done, is that going to be a problem in the coming months? Well, I think it's certainly the case that you know David is now back as a major political player in the current political fight. And as you and I know, if you're on the other side, you know, you, you need to take the fight to your opponents. And so you know, there'll be lots of, I suspect, warm words from the Labour Party saying, you know, very nice to have David Cameron back and then straight to the attack. And again, David... There'll be no file because they wouldn't have been doing any research on David Cameron because they'd have assumed he wasn't coming back. <laughs> the, um, I, but, I, you know, I think David's um, external interests, if you could put it like that, are very well known. And you're right that, you know, the, the Lex Greensill incident was a big blow. and But as a result of that, he has a very straightforward life and a very straightforward 
commercial life and indeed much of his energy was in um, things like chairing Alzheimer's UK. So, you know, it's not like, you know, some other former prime ministers we can think of who have like pretty complicated business arrangements. So I don't think that will be a problem. And also, you know, David is sufficiently self-aware that if he thought like there's some real big issue I've got to tell people about, he would have done that. You know, so he's, he's, you know, again, he has all the, you know, the wisdom and experience now of having been out for it. It's an interesting question also. I think, you know, as a foreign secretary, do you conduct foreign policy in a slightly different way than if you're mm-hmm. the young rising star who's risen up through the ministerial ranks? Like like someone like, you know, James Cleverly, who's, you know, been, mm-hmm. a, as far as I can see, a very competent foreign secretary now, the Home Secretary. But maybe David, because he's been operating in this different world, traveling around, meeting all these foreign leaders and interacting with global businesses, you bring something a bit different to the Foreign Office and hopefully to Britain's advantage. I was, you know, wondering whether if you were going to bring a big wig back um, into the House of Lords, actually William Hague would have been a slightly safer thing to do than David Cameron. That might be about interest. It's also about the kind of the politics of this. And we had this, there was a great tweet from Nick McPherson, former permanent secretary to the Treasury. We both know very well, old Etonian, who um, I was asking for questions and he said, why is it only old Etonian former prime ministers and or peers who come back as foreign secretary just asking for mm-hmm. a friend? And there is a sort of, um, you know, there's not been an Etonian at the top of government for a little while. <laughs> and and suddenly we're kind of back to, you know, I wonder what is the red wall going to think of um, the return of the, the Etonian Cameron? <laughs> well, first of all, I would observe it's only Etonians who are obsessed by their school. <laughs> so, so only only an old Italian, the first thing they notice is it's an old, another old Italian returning. Uh, you know, the, the, the people who went to that school seem even more obsessed about it than the, the rest of the country. I don't, you know, I, you know it never worked. We, I think we discussed this on one of the former podcasts. This whole kind of labour charge that, you know, it's a bunch of Italians or a bunch of posh kids or not, so, not, not kids anymore at the top of the Tories, it never works. And it doesn't work because, first of all, the Labour leader is called Sir Keir Starmer. And going, you go around the uh, housing estates of uh, the northeast of England and try and explain there's some difference between Sir Keir Starmer and Mr Rishi Sunak. You know, good luck to you. And also, I think it is fair to say that the Conservatives in recent years have created a much more diverse mm. and much more representative of Britain cabinet than certainly I ever thought possible when I was in politics 10 years ago, and frankly, than the Labour parties managed in office. So, That's true. you know, I don't think it really, that sort of stuff doesn't cut through. I think the kind of question, the good question is, is David Cameron going to be just the sort of person who's the, you know, come back, comes back, does his time as foreign secretary, goes around to Israel and tries to sort out the Gaza situation, goes to Kiev to meet Zelensky, and doesn't, add to the sort of domestic political offer of the Conservatives beyond his very appointment today? Or does he get stuck in and the more he's involved, the more he's like, I want Rishi Sunak to remain as Prime Minister. I want him to win the general election. I want my party to win and I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. And That's I, quite close to a question, George, actually we had from, from Hannah. Can we just play her right, question? Because yeah. I think in a way that throws it forward. Hi, Ed and George. It's Monday and I am currently watching the news that David Cameron has taken on the role of Foreign Secretary. 
What do you think he's going to gain from this appointment? And what do you think Rishi Sunak's going to gain from this appointment? I've got to say, unlike you and I, David Cameron is choosing to go back into the maelstrom and all of that scrutiny. I mean, it's a big decision, a brave decision. And, you know, one, as you from a public service point of view, I respect, but I wonder what he gains. And if you think over the next year, how much do you think Rishi Sunak gains beyond a few days from this. It definitely knocks the sack you brave him off the front pages of 24 hours. Do you think it makes a difference? Well, I think for, from David's point of view, it is the call of public service. And I think, you know, he really feels he can make a difference and help not just the government, but help the country with its foreign policy at a particularly difficult and dangerous time. And I know people will say, yeah, yeah, whatever. But he has no other motivation than that. He's done it. He's been there. He's literally worn the crown. I think for Rishi Sunak, you know, Hannah's question is a good one. Is this just another sort of maneuver that kind of takes the headlines today, a bit like the conference speech, and then there's no kind of consistency? Or is this a serious attempt to recapture from the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats, the centre ground of politics, to recapture what people call the blue wall, which are the vulnerable conservative seats in the South that David Cameron so successfully won in 2010 and in 2015 swept the board with. In other words, is Rishi Sunak going to build on this as just you know a single eye-catching announcement in a reshuffle as a realignment of his government? I hope it's the latter, but it comes with risks because there will be people in the conservative family who don't like that. There will be people on the right who will complain. But they have never offered us a route to winning a general election. They don't today and they didn't in the past. While we've been speaking, um, not only has Jesse Norman stood down as Transport Secretary, Therese Coffey has now stepped down as well. Looking at my uh, Twitter feed, it's also just been confirmed that Jeremy Hunt is staying at uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer. And uh, I think Labour probably would be quite happy with that. But uh, question from Callum Taylor. How will David Cameron be held to account by the opposition when he's in the House of Lords, I guess, at this particularly sensitive time for foreign policy with events happening in the Middle East. Do you think that'll be a a concern for Rishi Sunak? I don't think it'll be a concern for Rishi Sunak. I think David Cameron will make, you know, a huge effort to engage with MPs, including Labour MPs, but he will not be in the House of Commons. He will probably have a Conservative minister sort of assigned to answer the Foreign Secretary's questions in the House of Commons. We've had precedents for that. Uh, you know, we were just talking about Peter Mandelson. There was a minister who answered for his portfolio at the time. And it's one of those, I think it's one of those sort of little Westminster rows you get, which don't make uh, much difference beyond Westminster. Well, look, um, of course, Peter wasn't Foreign Secretary, much to his um, huge dismay, if I remember. But he had a very he, long title, did he not? He was he had, first Secretary of State I and mean, he was Chancellor of the... Was he the who would ever want Chancellor? to ask the Prime Minister to be first Secretary, eh, hey, George? Who would ever ask him? Well, I, I briefly did that, George. <laughs> <laughs> we will have um, a couple of days to analyse all of this as we go through Prime questions. We are back on Thursday for our regular uh, podcast, by which time... Goodness knows what will happen in politics. And we can work out by then the Labour reaction. I remember 96, 97, there was always a, a worry. There'd be a, a change of leader that John Major would step aside and somebody would come in and make a difference. Um, I wonder, will Labour be looking at David Cameron returning and being fearful? Or will they think um, 
if, the, uh, if that's the best you can do, then bring it on. We'll um, find out over the next uh, few days. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.